0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. Good morning again. Uh, Very happy to be here. Um, Very appreciative that Mark has supported my work for the last ten years, and. I'm always moved by the power of this community, the strength of this community, the sangha and the, the amount of involvement of volunteers and um, just the way it's supported by people's generosity and really a, a great example of, of the dharma in action. Um So this morning, uh, I I wanted to talk about uh, why we practice. Uh, It's sort of a a question that a lot of times we might not really think about particularly. And yet, it can have significant uh, impact on how our practice unfolds. You know, uh, today we see that the mindfulness practices have been adapted for many different purposes, from uh, stress reduction or uh, psychotherapy or to mindful eating programs or uh, athletes who use mindfulness, and even uh, the military, where people are being trained to be more mindful uh, in uh, combat situations. And so there, there's actually quite a debate in the Buddhist community about some of these uh, ways people are applying the practices. We can see that our motivation for practice can actually, to a great extent, it it determines where our practice is going to go and how far it's going to go. The Buddha himself, when we hear the story of his life and his his journey you know, started out with this longing to understand suffering and to find some way to uh, end suffering. So we see that uh, along his journey before he attained enlightenment, uh, he had two teachers uh, and uh, they taught him... the very powerful concentration practices called jhana. And each of those teachers found him to be an excellent student, not surprisingly, uh, to the extent that they each, at a certain point, asked him to join them as teachers. They uh, said, I've I've taught you everything I know, and uh, so now why don't you join me and, and we can lead the community together. And the Buddha refused both times because his motivation for practice was not satisfied by what he'd attained through those concentration practices. What he wanted was to be free from suffering. And what he found was that when he was in these states of concentration, these deep states of calm and peace, there was no suffering. But when the bell rang, it came back. So it wasn't a solution. So we can see that had his motivation been to simply have a very rich meditation experience, then he might not have attained what he did. I've, I was reflecting on this topic and how to talk about it. Uh, I thought about my own experience uh, where what my motivation was to practice. And, I, you know, when I, the title of this talk was something like Why Practice, Wise Motivation, or Diluted Expectation. And I, I had a lot of diluted expectation when I began to practice. Um, but, in some ways, that's okay. The The important thing we know is to just practice, is to show up, right? Uh, because in some ways, the practice just unfolds of its own accord, just when we just sit on the cushion or sit on a chair, however we sit, when we come to stillness, when we bring the mind uh, into uh, attentiveness. But what I see when I look back over the years of my early practice is that although things were unfolding in a very wonderful way and very helpful way, they weren't, uh, I wasn't achieving my expectations. And that then affected how I felt about what was happening in my practice. I felt that I wasn't succeeding. I wasn't getting what I wanted. So I became restless and and started to look for something else, something more uh effective to accomplish what I wanted, which was to just, uh, well, I'm not sure what I wanted. I wanted to feel really good, to not have any problems. (laughs) And I thought that something called enlightenment would just make me kind of transcend everything. Basically, I wouldn't have any bills to pay. (laughs) You know, everybody would love me. I'd kind of be high all the time, naturally. You know. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I went on a three-month retreat, which was very powerful and transformative in many ways, but at the end, I hadn't gotten that. And, uh, and so over the next couple of years, I kind of drifted away from practice. It wasn't until I got sober that I kind of re-approached my practice and started to... Uh, Look at different purposes. I said I wasn't going to give a talk about the 12 steps. That doesn't mean I'm not going to refer to certain 12-step concepts. Uh, just, so, uh, because just as an example of a motivation for practice, the, the 11th step says, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him problematic right there, but (laughs) praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Well, if we can put aside the sort of sexist and and theistic language, (laughs) I don't know, what are we left with? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I've been trying to explain to people for the last 10 years. We're we're actually left with quite a bit. Uh, but we can see that there's a particular intention in that—to—to to, um, get connected to something, to, to ha- conscious contact. I think is actually a really lovely phrase, and conscious contact is kind of what we do in practice. We consciously contact our breath, we consciously contact our hearts and our minds. We're conscious in that experience. But there's also an idea that we're not doing this for our own pleasure, our own gratification, but that we're trying to uh, do it for some higher purpose. So I think there's a certain value in that. No, but there's also sort of a looking for, well, what am I supposed to do? So kind of looking for answers. That's one motivation. not uh, It's not bad. <laughs> um, so the what does the Buddha say about practice and why, why we practice, um, this kind of falls under, I would have to say, it falls under the uh, area of right intention, which is the, one of the elements of the Eightfold Path. So the uh, right intention from the Buddhist standpoint is quite simple. Our intention be, should be non-clinging and non-ill-will. Just as an aside, I find it interesting that the Buddha often uses this negative language. It's something I've been kind of looking at lately, I'm trying to understand why doesn't he just say letting go and love? You know, that's what we're practicing for. And and there may be uh, there are probably a variety of reasons. Some of which might just be translation or linguistic. But but one way to look at this is that. Because what the Buddha is trying to encourage us to do is not become attached to anything, he doesn't put out something that we might get attached to, like an idea that's like, oh, I should love. Okay, let me me be more loving. He just says non-ill will, non-clinging. And so that, that kind of puts me in a place where there isn't something I'm kind of trying to reach at. Instead... I'm here looking at what's here. What have I got? Is there ill will? Is there clinging? Can I let go of that? And then, letting go of that, there's kind of an organic process that happens. When there is not ill will, there is love. When there is not clinging, there is letting go. We don't have to create those things. But this is very simple. Can we approach our practice as just cultivating non-ill-will and non-cleaning, uh, not hoping that we're going to get something out of it. No, I, I think it's, it's natural to want to get something out of, out of it. It's not that we shouldn't you know, want something from our practice. I mean, why would we come in here and spend the morning doing nothing if we didn't expect to get something from doing nothing? You know, I, I actually when I was uh, in the teacher training called Community Dharma Leader the training with uh, with Mark and a group of other uh, practitioners. Towards the end of our training, which was about two and a half years, um, some of us gave little talks to the group to sort of to practice and practice giving talks, or we had some theme we wanted to discuss, and so and I I gave a talk something uh, that was something about this theme, and, and said that I thought everybody came to practice out of their own suffering, and I was corrected by some of my fellow community Dharma leaders who said they didn't come to practice out of their own suffering, but that they came to practice out of their own longing to understand something. And that that reminds me of the some of the people in the '60s, people like Ram Dass who you know were experimenting with LSD and um, and became interested in consciousness and and said, "Wow, you know, maybe instead of using a drug, there's a way to do this naturally." And so, uh, you know, there was a a large contingent of people who were motivated by this search for i guess we could say truth but also just to understand human consciousness and that you know he was a psychologist right? so we see that that's a large thread of of practice coming through that uh, approach so when there's that motivation we look for oh what can i do with this you know wow I've, i'm learning something about consciousness how can i How can I apply that? Um, So, you know, when we look at then the Buddhist life, I'm hoping this is going to make sense as one thing, but I'm not sure. Um, When he has this breakthrough that we call enlightenment, He's kind of sitting there. It's interesting when he describes this experience. It's, it's this moment I find very interesting that he's sitting there having had this breakthrough and, and kind of sitting in the bliss of non-ill will and non-attachment, non-clinging. just a total peace. And really, the, at that point, there's really nothing to do. There's nothing more to do. And that's that's actually one of the phrases that goes with the enlightenment experience. Now, what's done, what needed to be done is done. So there's really nothing more for him to do. He can just kind of sit there and wait for the end, I guess, of his life. Um, And as the story goes, in the the text, he's visited by a god from the uh, Brahma realm for those who don't think there are god there's a god in buddhism there's actually a lot of gods in buddhism but we just don't have uh, the you know our god and this god says to the buddha you know uh, there are some people who would benefit from this because one of the, the thought the buddha has been having is this is like so advanced nobody's going to get it and if i go out and try to teach it it's just going to kind of be irritating because they're not going to get it, and I'm going to be trying to explain it, and they're not, not going to understand. And it's like, forget it. I'm not going to bo- get bother myself. Why should I? You know, I don't have, I don't need to do that. But this this god says to the Buddha, you know, there are some with just a little dust in their eyes. Beautiful phrase, a little dust in their eyes. Who will benefit? You know, and that you, you should teach. You should teach out of compassion for those beings. So that then becomes the Buddha's work. So from what we know of his story, he didn't start out with this motivation that I'm going to save the world. You know, uh, He started out trying to solve an existential question that he had for himself. But somehow that, once that was answered, something else opened up, and this is really what opens up at, the, I would say, let me call it the climax of every spiritual path. Is it's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about my journey. It's about something greater. Because when when one sees through the idea of self, when that there is no self to satisfy, then wh- why would you spend your life trying to take care of that thing that doesn't exist? You know, and satisfy that thing that's really so uh, ephemeral, transient. And so we see this in every. Major spiritual tradition that service is the ultimate, you know, purpose. You could say. And yet, <laughs> starting out with the idea of service, I'm actually uh, teaching an online course right now through the Mindful Schools program, and they have a uh, something called Mindfulness Fundamentals that they uh, teach for people who want to people who want to take mindfulness into elementary schools, which is their main program, but don't have a background. In mindfulness practice. They go, okay, before we teach you how to teach, <laughs> we're going to teach you how to practice. So they have a six-week online course. I don't know if that's quite enough, but uh, it's to start. And at the beginning of the course, people are asked to uh, post on their forums a little a comment about who they are and why they're taking the course. And I saw that many of the people were taking the course in order to Teach it, in order to help other people, in order to pass it on to their children. And I kind of thought, whoa, <laughs> you know, slow down. Uh, yeah. First, you know, address your own practice to, uh, to get out there and think you're going to save the world before, before you've sort of really examined yourself. In any significant way is is risky, to say the least. Um, it uh, you know it's it's a lovely motivation, but but uh, it's kind of getting ahead of yourself. So this this sort of puts us. Uh, I'm not trying to come in here and present you with answers. <laughs> it's really that's why there were a bunch of question marks in in the title of this talk. Why practice? I don't know. You know, I've had people approach me and say, you know, I want to do what you do. What do I I have to do to become a a teacher? Uh, Well, let me see. Meditate a whole lot. And suffer, if you can, you know, if you can manage that. (laughs) So I think that this is something to to look at for each of us. Um, Why we practice. Uh, We can see that, you know, when you, if you have sat with uh, monastics, one of the elements of the monastic practice is this tremendous devotion, this real just love for the Buddha, for the historical Buddha, and for the Buddha within. Uh, uh, The sense of uh, just sweetness that comes with that. And of course, many of us practice because uh, of what's out there. You know, this world is so uh, so crazy, you know, and to try to find some sanity within. Of course, usually we have to go discover our own craziness first before we find our sanity. But uh, that's all part of the process. You know, but. Uh, it, People will often, you know, people come to my workshops that are often, that are usually oriented towards recovery, so Dharma and recovery, Buddhism and the 12 steps, however you want to put it, and uh, oftentimes they come because they want to complete their 12-step program by learning the 11th step, to learn to meditate. And then they also kind of feel like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm sober or I'm, you know, I'm clean or whatever they're program is and but I still kind of in you know, a lot of stress and anxiety in my life and and so maybe that this will help me with that so they come and they sit as you come and you sit here and um, you know the first thing that happens as as seems to be the case for most people is that rather than getting peace when we sit down to meditate we get, we realize that, that there is no peace inside us. That we we see the craziness. There's all the thoughts and all the feelings, and then we're like, "Well, now, now, how do I, how do I fix this? How do I, what do I get through? What am I supposed to do to, you know, to get the thing that I came here for? Because I came here to for peace and for calm, and and uh, you know, what people want, especially addicts, is they want to fix, right? but i think many of us want want uh the the secret you know get, just give me that you know the thing that you're doing you know that's making you so peaceful <laughs> no i just know how to sit still that doesn't mean i'm peaceful so there's you know, there's this longing there must be some trick to this right what's the you know uh I'll try this practice. Well, I heard mantras are pretty good right now, or visualizations. Oh, loving kindness. Oh, that feels good. Yeah, I'll do that for a while. And then you're starting to do love, and then you start thinking about the difficult person. You're like, oh, no, let's not do loving kindness. That's not working. <laughs> <anymore."> <laughs> you know, and, and what I usually say to people when they say, well, you know, I'd really like to go further with this practice. Well, <laughs> you need to spend more time. You know, we live in this instant culture, running faster and faster. I'm just reading the book "Flash Boys" by Michael Lewis. I don't know if you know him, but he's a, actually a, he lives in Berkeley, and his daughter was on the same softball team as mine, so gotten to know him a little bit. And a great writer. And and his this book is about high-speed uh, 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 stock um, trading, right? And these people who built a, a uh, uh, like, uh, some, you know, you got, somebody who's read this can tell me what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> they, they built wi- wires to run from uh, New Jersey to Chicago in a straight line so that they would get the uh, information on the stocks milliseconds before other people would and therefore could, like, beat the market. Uh, okay, that dr- something went down, quick, sell that before the people in Chicago who are a couple milliseconds behind and their computers are running slow. You know, I mean, insanity, complete insanity. And this is, of course, how our economy is running, right? Anyway, we won't go there. But, you know, we come into meditation. Meditation doesn't work on a schedule. It doesn't work on modern time frames. It, it works on an ancient you know, deep spiritual time, you know, timeless time. <laughs> it unfolds in its own way. We sit and we sit. You can wait while you're sitting if you want, however you address it. But it will unfold. Uh, it, but there isn't, you know, oh, if I, if I just meditate 20 minutes, 20, then I'll get it, right? Well, Maybe. Depends on your karma. You know? uh, I had to meditate for about three weeks for the first time that I actually had an experience where I thought, oh, this is what they were talking about. And The rest of the time, it just felt like I was faking it. Uh, I don't know if anybody's <laughs> ever felt that in their meditation practice. Uh, I'm doing what the teacher said, but nothing seems to be happening. <laughs> Why is it? What's wrong with me? You're a human That's the problem. So uh, bringing this quality of of willingness and commitment and determination to practice, uh, important elements of motivation, non-clinging and non-ill will, non-clinging to expectations, non-ill will towards myself for not achieving my expectations. Being willing to just keep coming back, as we say in the twelve step world. What a challenge! You know, there's a beautiful line in the in Suzuki Roshi's book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind that the the Bodhisattva knows only only one way, and even if the sun were to rise in the west, he would don't. Continue on his way, continue his practice. So I've been practicing now for almost 35 years, and uh, and I just, you know, I just get up in the morning and I go and I do it. And really, I don't know why. I really don't. I uh, along the way, you know, I've had different motivations. Uh, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to have this experience. I'm going to have this breakthrough. Most of that has fallen away. Now I just sort of seem to do it because it's what I do. It's a practice. And that seems to be a lot easier. Um, I describe in one of my books, I say the difference between my experience when I'm meditating and the experience of the beginner who's sitting in front of me when I'm teaching is that that person who's sitting there is spacing out most of the time and they're really frustrated about it. I'm sitting here and I'm spacing out most of the time and it doesn't bother me. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean... (laughs) Certainly, I've had experiences, you know, very profound meditation experiences. But, as you know, they don't stay. You can't hold on to them. That's non-flinging. And if I have ill will towards my experience, then I'm just creating more suffering for myself. I know that the, my practice is as it is because of the causes and conditions that are have occurred leading to this moment, and, and ar- that have arrived in this moment. And so there is nothing to do but accept that. If I want to have a deep experience of stillness, yeah. I need to spend the time to do that. So, bless you and everybody. And God bless you, everyone. So, uh, according to the clock, it is To take questions, thank you. Sure. Well, I'm glad I answered all your questions. (laughs) What it is, but like. could you talk a little bit about non clinginess versus relationships? Non clinging versus, uh, in, uh, yeah, love to. Oh. I'm a mom and I've got to punch off with another one, a teen, and more and more off. Yeah. Man, um, I find myself clinging. Yeah. But I don't, I mean, whatever. So, yeah, I'd happy to hear Yeah, no, well, I mean, it's an interesting subject, and certainly in the Buddha himself. You know, left his his infant son and and wife to pursue his path. So uh, there are some issues, um, and <laughs> one of his teachings is called "Born of Those Who Are Dear," and what is born from those who are dear, according to him, is suffering. So um, there, it does take a bit of reflection, I think, to hold these things, ideas, in t- terms of. Family and loved ones. First of all, I think that it's clear that the Buddha was right—that when we are attached to people uh, in deeply emotional ways, that that's there's going to be some sense of loss or grief at, at different times, or or struggle when they aren't behaving the way we want them to. Or so um, so it is true that a certain aspect and degree of suffering does come through intimacy. Um, I don't think, I don't take that to mean we shouldn't be in relationships, but rather that I'm not confused about that, that I understand that that's the price of that to a degree. Now, I think it also, though, is a great challenge, particularly for parents, and I am a parent of a... uh, in two days, a sixteen-year-old. She's only fifteen right now. to, so <laughs> No matter what she says, um, and and so it's it's really interesting to watch that that clinging and, and you know her need to separate and uh, and how you know there's a difference between a kind of wholesome loving you know attachment. And a a neurotic attachment, you know uh, like ex- expectation that someone's going to take care of me emotionally or satisfy me emotionally, and there are 12 step programs for people with those problems you know uh, and, and so it really is a rich place for for exploration and to and to look at where i th- I think you're you're right that there, if if I understood what you were saying that there's kind of there's a clinging that's that's, that leads to suffering, and then there's a kind of connection that's not necessi- that isn't really what the Buddha's talking about, uh, caring and taking care of people. And, and, and it's, I think, uh, just an ongoing, just as with so much of practice, something we are examining within ourselves in an ongoing way and seeing how, oh, right now I'm, c- I'm clinging, I can feel that, and then being able to back off and go, oh, okay, well, this is a skillful way to express my caring. And and I'm not suffering because, you know, my child is going away to college. And, of course, I cry, you know, but that, you know, I'm not overwhelmed. It's just the natural experience of change and loss. Uh, Very, very, uh, very challenging. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.